I'm going to invite you to turn again to Isaiah 49, which is once again our text this morning. And Lord willing, we'll finish this chapter today. But Isaiah 49. There are times in the lives of Christians when they are under the chastening of the Lord, and it feels like that chastening is just going to go on and on forever. There are times when God's trials, His tests of His people, feel like that He's abandoned them completely. Sometimes the Lord's pruning work, His sanctifying work, feels like His cutting off their arm or their hand. And sometimes He lets His enemy conquer them as if the enemy will have the final word as if God has forgotten them, has forsaken them. The Lord, as it were, leaves them to themselves for a time. The historic Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689 reminds us that God always intends good for his people even when he leaves them alone and hides himself for a while. The writers of that confession put it this way. The most wise, gracious, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and corruptions of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they might be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. The Lord does sometimes leave his children in a way that feels like abandonment and like he's forgetting them and he's forsaking them. And there are times in the life of every Christian when when we're tempted to to allow those thoughts to dominate us, to think that God has just given us over and just walked away from us. And in this passage, what you have is a series of three laments. And in turn, the answers to God of people who are hurting, who are lamenting, who are, who are discouraged. And in the latter case of the chapter, even those who are, are doubting the goodness of God. The first lament is in verse 4. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, and this comes from the Messiah himself who laments that his labor seems in vain, right? Look at the beginning of verse 4. The servant of the Lord, or the Messiah, says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. And of course, the Messiah's lament here is not apart from faith, for in the end of the verse, he commits himself to God and expresses his faith in God, even when it seems like God has abandoned him and God has forsaken him and all of his labors for the Lord have been for nothing. Remember the scripture says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. He died all alone on the cross, forsaken apparently even by his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
This is the expression of our Lord in verse 4. And the Lord's answer, Jehovah's answer to this lament from his servant is found in verses 8 to 13 that we looked at last Lord's Day. Verses 8 to 13, the Lord's answer to his servant was essentially this, wait, wait, because there is a day coming that will be a day of my favor, a day of my salvation. And the apostles picked up on this and saw the fulfillment of it in their own day. That is, in the day, not of our Lord's suffering, but of his resurrection and his exaltation, his ascension and exaltation and enthronement in heaven and the outpouring of the Spirit and the unleashing of the gospel in their day. They said, this is the day that the Lord has answered the prayer of his servant. This is the day of salvation, the day of the Lord's favor. They saw it. After the Lord's long night of waiting and suffering, Easter morning came and the Lord answered his prayer. And that day will come for every child of God. And so one of the great testimonies of this passage, and we'll see it again in the end of this chapter, is that God's people wait. First comes suffering and then comes glory. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. The Lord will not keep his anger forever. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. That's one of the great testimonies that that God's people must rely on who God is and wait. Even in those times of their lives when it feels like God has given them over to themselves, to temptation, to the persecutions of those around them, to trials and troubles, and it feels like he's forgotten them and hasn't answered their prayers and his purposes have all fallen short. Even in those times, the Lord says to his people, wait, the day is coming when I will answer if you will persevere. And when the day of the Messiah's deliverance finally came, we saw last week that God gave him as a covenant to his people for their salvation. And so the Lord's answering the prayer of the servant has blessings and benefits for all of us who are now in covenant with God through the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel. Christ lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And it was given as a covenant to people who repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. The covenant promise we saw last week was that we will one day, we who are in covenant with God through Jesus Christ, the servant, will one day enter our heavenly land of promise, the land of rest, the land that God has prepared for us, the new heavens and the new earth, our inheritance. And God's purpose now is to call out for himself a people out of this world and call them to go on pilgrimage to that land that he's prepared for them to get on the pilgrim road to trust in the lord jesus christ and follow him trusting in him to take them into glory that god has prepared for them who trust in him that is the promise that isaiah is given and is caught up with as the lord answers the prayer of his servant and in covenant with his people, God promises to do for them whatever it takes to get them from where they are into that land of rest. 
And so he promises to provide for them spiritual sustenance all along the way of their journey, that bread of life and that water, uh, that living water that will sustain them. He promises to protect them from the elements that would scorch and wither that, that young life and cause them to die without ever bearing fruit. He promises to protect and guide them along the way, to go ahead of them and prepare the way for them into the promised land. They're not left alone to just make their way through a weary wilderness. He himself goes and he says, I will make a road over the mountain and I will lift up the low places and I will plan the journey so it goes by springs of water so they can be refreshed. I myself will go ahead of you, the Lord says, and prepare the way on this journey that you're on to the eternal kingdom. I will take care of you. I will do everything that it takes to bring pilgrims from all over the globe, in fact, streaming into the city of Jerusalem, the holy place that I have prepared as a dwelling place for all who trust in me. And in the end, it ends with global cosmic praise, right? In verse 13, sing for joy, O heavens and earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. So these people are afflicted now. They're in Babylon. They're in captivity. They're on pilgrimage. They're wandering through the wilderness trying to get back to the promised land. They're forsaken at times, it seems like. Their their labor is in vain. They're tempted to doubt the goodness of God, but the Lord says, I will have compassion on them. Just as the servant of the Lord faced discouraging circumstances and had to trust in the Lord, the people of the servant, the city of God and the people of that city, they face discouragement as well. Look at verse 14 now. Here's the second movement in this chapter. Verse 14, Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And what happens next in verses 15 to 23 is the Lord's answer to them in light of their connection to the Messiah. And then again, you hear the voice of discouragement from the people of Zion in verse 24. Here's the third movement in this chapter. They see themselves like prey for powerful enemies. And again, the Lord answers them in verses 25 and following. For thus says the Lord, and there's the Lord's answer to that. So all through this passage, what we have are the Lord's answers for discouragement. The Lord's answers for discouragement. This passage is about Zion. Zion, of course, you know, is another, just another name for the city of Jerusalem. But most of you also are very well aware that that ancient city foreshadows, according to Hebrews chapter 12, the Zion that is the heavenly Jerusalem, the eternal gathering of all of the people of God. And the writer of Hebrews goes on in chapter 12 there, and he says that in the new covenant, you and I, who've trusted in Jesus Christ, you and I who are Christians, we have actually already come up to Mount Zion spiritually, gathered into that city of God to enjoy God's presence, even right now, even while we're waiting for the consummation yet of all that that is for us and all of God's promises. But while we're still waiting for the consummation, while we're still waiting for heaven, we're in between heaven now and heaven not yet. 
while we're in this point where we're on this pilgrimage, we're already through the wicked gate, but we're not yet to the celestial city. We're already in the place where the king has prepared his road, but we're not yet to the destination. While we're there, and that's where every one of us is, right? The temptation is going to be when we come across certain parts of that journey to be discouraged, to be disheartened, and even tempted to despair. And that's where you we come this morning in verse 14 to Zion's first lament. And it begins with the word what? Verse 14. The little word, but. Right? Because what came before? Glory, right? (laughs) Praise to the Lord for all that he will do across the whole earth. He will show compassion on his people. But, but Zion said, a little contrasting conjunction. And that's because there's a contrast between what God has said would be the case and what was apparently the case in the moment. And that is so often the case. It's the case for every one of us. God's promises do not yet seem to be bearing fruit. And I just want to say that God's promises often come with a sort of time release, like a seed that you plant in the ground. And when the seed is planted, the harvest will come, But there's a period of time where you're waiting. In fact, there's a period of time when you put the seed in the ground, you cover it up with earth, and you stare at it day after day. Have you ever done that with a a child? You've planted something, and they go out every morning to see if anything sprouted yet, and nothing is there. It's just dirt. And then they come out the next day, and it's just dirt again and dirt again. God's promises are often like that. He sows his promises into the soil of this world, and they... they sit there for a time before they germinate, just like many seeds do. Some seeds sit days or weeks or some even years before they ever sprout into life. In fact, just a few years ago, they discovered some seeds in Israel, in Masada, and uh, they, it, this was the, the seed of a Judean palm, and they planted this seed, and after 2,000 years, this seed sprouted and came to life. And in fact, that palm is actually uh, reproducing now. The Lord's promises like that sometimes wait a long time, seemingly dormant, before they spring to life. And I'm, I'm telling you that what, part of what God is doing is demonstrating, testing, and demonstrating the faith of his people who confess that he's trustworthy in spite of what they see in the moment. But how often are God's people tempted when the circumstances don't seem to line up with the promises to complain, to confess that the Lord has apparently abandoned them. And you know, kind of going back to that seed illustration, sometimes when the seed, even when it begins to sprout, it takes a long time before it ever comes to full bloom. Sometimes that plant grows slowly, and sometimes God's promises come to fruition, but so slowly over a period of time, and we will always want them to come to fruition right now, right? Um, There are plants that don't produce fruit for several years after they first begin to grow. There's There's something called the century plant that only blooms once every 100 years, right? Can you imagine waiting 100 years for this bloom? 
And some of God's promises are like that. Some of his purposes are slow to unfold and come to full flower. Indeed, for some of his promises, we've been waiting for, what, 2,000-plus years for the Lord to fulfill what he purposed to do. There is so often a delay, and we shouldn't be surprised at this, right? The Lord was our example, the Lord Jesus. For him, suffering came first, 33 years of suffering, and then, and only then, glory. He lay in the tomb for three days and three nights, apparently forsaken by God, until, in the end, the Lord answered him. And our Lord was a perfect example of this kind of faith that said, in spite of what I see right now, I'm going to commit myself into your hands. And he did. He did with his dying breath. But delay, God's delays, create a a real contrast between what he's promised and what we currently see. And the temptation is to say just what Zion complains here in verse 14. The Lord has what? The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And of course, for 70 years in the exile in Babylon, Jerusalem lay waste. Its walls torn down, its city burned by fire, its walls merely heaps of stones, the city nearly uninhabited for all of that period of time, 70 years. Imagine if you were born shortly before the carrying away into captivity in Babylon. And you were an old man, an old woman, before you ever saw even the inkling of the fulfillment of these promises. Or imagine if you were a child born during the captivity, and your parents told you of the glories of Jerusalem, and the beauty of the temple, and that God dwelt with his people And they recited for you all of these incredible promises of the glory that God assured his people would be theirs. But you'd never seen that with your eyes in your entire life. And you're 57 years old now. These people were waiting. And in the midst of their waiting, some of them, many of them were tempted to say, God's just forgotten all about us. God has forsaken us. And I do believe that there are times in the lives of even perhaps God's people in this long sojourn, many of us born in this exile, so to speak, while we're still longing for our eternal rest. And and the temptation is to listen to the world who says to us, where is the promise of his coming? For everything just keeps on continuing as it has been since the foundation of the world. Have you forgotten? Have you forsaken us? Or maybe within an individual journey of your life, you have come to a point in your own life's journey where it seems like you've been abandoned by God, where it seems like your prayers have gone unanswered. God's promises that you've been claiming have just remained unfulfilled, and all of his work in you woefully unfinished, and you say, Lord, where are you? Help. And he just seems to leave you there without answering, just sort of languishing for a time. Alone and from all apparent 
view uh, abandoned, forsaken. What is the Lord's answer to us when we're tempted to think like that? When we're tempted to complain that the Lord has forgotten and abandoned us? What is the Lord's answer to the city of God? The answer comes in verses 15 and following in three vivid images. Three vivid word pictures. It's as if just telling them the answer isn't enough. The Lord wants to paint a picture for them, to show them. And the first is in verse 15. Take a look. Here's the first answer for his people. When they're tempted to say, the Lord has forgotten, the Lord has forsaken me. In verse 15, he says, I can no more forget you than a mother can forget her child. How in the world can a mother forget that child that literally grew within her body, that was sharing her very lifeblood? How can a mother forget her child? And notice what kind of child it is. What's the age of this child? Pretty young, right? This nursing child, this child who is dependent on her mother for everything. Which of you mothers can harden your heart against a helpless, crying child of yours, hungry in the other room? I'll tell you, no more can God forsake and harden his heart and shut up his compassion upon his people when they pray and cry out to him for help. This is what he's telling them. I mean, you just try to put a mother in the same room with her crying baby and tell her that she can't go to that baby and see how long they last. The Lord says, this is the way I am towards my children. The best of mothers would forsake her child, would harden her heart against her crying baby faster than I would forsake my people. The Lord cannot forget, will not forget. Zion is always right there in front of him, upon his breast, right in his arms, sustaining her life. And when she cries, he is moved with compassion. That's the first image. The second one is in verse 16. Verse 16, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Have you ever written a note to yourself on the palm of your hand? Why do you do that? Well, maybe it's because you just didn't have any paper handy. Some people, sometimes we get in that kind of situation. But sometimes we intentionally write it. We could have written it on a sticky note or something, but we intentionally have written it on the palms of our hands. Why do we do that? Because you're never going to forget, because everywhere you go, your hands are right there in front of you. If you didn't have a mirror, your hands are that part of you you would look at more than any other part of your body. They're always in front of you, especially today with phones and tablets and cell phones, right? Always in front of us. This is what the Lord is saying. I am writing you on the palms of my hands. To forget you, I'd have to cut off my own hands, as it were. This is how intricately tied the Lord has made himself to his people. Your name is not just written, not just inscribed with ink. You know, that can wear off in time. You can wash that off. But he uses the word engraved. Your name is engraved on the palms of my hand, which is a, a strange sort of image to think about, literally. 
But the idea of being engraved or being etched in stone is used intentionally to demonstrate the permanence of this. Think of all of those inscriptions that were etched into stone and dug up at some archaeological site. And think of all of the centuries that have passed since a person first took chisel and etched into that stone, all of the civilizations that have risen up since then and collapsed since then. I mean, eons have passed since that was first chiseled into that, but it stands as an everlasting memorial etched right there in the stone. And the Lord is saying that, listen, no matter how long you have to wait for the outworking of God's promises, you, Christian, are permanently inscribed on God's own hands, perpetually right in front of him. And there is, of course, a very literal expression of this, and that is our Savior's own literal glorified body bore the marks of the nails in his hand, even in his resurrection state. He bore the testimony in his own hands of his love for the ones for whom he died. And, you know, we're not told everything about the resurrection state in the Bible. There's a lot that that the Lord just doesn't reveal to us yet. We are told that there will be no more curse, right? And no more effects of the curse, the primary, the, the, the greatest one being death. Death will be no more. So no more curse, no more effects of the curse. And so I would assume that we will not bear any physical deformities that we sustained in this life or physical injuries that we underwent. I would suspect that would be the case if the curse and all of its effects are taken away. But there is one glorious exception made, and that is that Jesus right now in his literal resurrection body bears the marks of our redemption in the palms of his hands. Jesus has a body. It is hidden from our sight right now. But in our Lord's own glorious body, he bore the imprints of the love of God for us. And that continues. The Lord says to you this morning, going through whatever you're going, feeling like God has forgotten, God's abandoned, God's left you to the enemy to be trampled forever in your state, maybe abandoned to his chastening hand and unrelenting in that. The Lord says to you, listen, my love for you is more than the love for a mother for her child. Your name is written on the palms of my hands. And then in verse 16, God proclaims his faithful love by a third image. In the end of that verse, he says it this way, your walls, city of Zion, your walls are continually before me, as if his gaze never averted from the holy city in its gleaming glory. He was ever bound to gaze upon that city. And there's a beautiful picture of this in the last book of our Bible, Revelation chapter 21, and I was half tempted to read that for the, for the scripture reading this morning, but many of you know it, Revelation chapter 21, John, the apostles, caught up in a vision, and an angel comes to him, 
And the angel says to John, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then he sees. But what he sees is not a woman, it's a city. A city coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And he describes that city as like a beautiful bride entering the room in all of her splendor, and all of her finery. Its walls were like that, dazzling, like a woman's wedding dress. And he describes the walls of that Zion that he sees. And he says the walls are built of jasper, which is a deep blood red color, a hard quartz-like stone. The walls are built of jasper, he says, and, and, and John just can't take his eyes off of this city. It's mesmerizing, it's beautiful. And using terminology that describe a woman's ornaments, he says that these walls are adorned, they're, they're dressed, they're bejeweled with every kind of jewel imaginable. And he goes on to list all of these jewels. And then this is a city, he says, that just glitters with the glory of God's holiness. And on the wall are 12 gates in this city. And on the 12 gates are inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the walls of this city have 12 foundations. And on them are etched the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so here is the whole of the people of God, like a bride entering the room, or like a magnificent city whose walls are mesmerizing. They're the glory of the whole earth, as the Lord says in the psalm, right? Lifted up and and the delight of God. This is the way it's pictured here. Sometimes we have weddings around here, and everybody's waiting for that one moment in the wedding, right? When the back doors finally open, All of the people are all standing up here at front, and the doors open, and in steps the bride in all of her glory, all of her finery. And she's fixed up, and she's made up, and beautiful dress, and she begins to walk in. And sometimes, in fact, I'll usually do this. In that moment, I'll steal a quick glance over to the groom. And you know what's on his face. His face is transfixed. He has eyes for nothing in the room but that bride walking down the aisle. And the Lord says, that is the way the walls of this city are before me. I have made this city beautiful. I have adorned it with glory. And my eyes are fixed upon my people. This is what I see This is what I'm going to make them into. I will never take my eyes off them. I am transfixed. The Lord never forgets His people. Those walls are ever in His gaze, for in them He sees His Son's own righteousness. The beautiful wedding garment that he gives to his bride to be covered in the righteousness of Christ. No wonder he can never take his eyes off of his people. They are wrapped in the beauty and the glory of his own son. And so, verse 18 and 19 just continue to enlarge on this image of the city bride. And he says, Your builders make haste 
And the Hebrew word for builders here is not clear how it should be translated. It could be builders or it could be children. And depending on what translation you have, they kind of go 50-50 on this. I think basically they're spelled the same, but they're pronounced differently. So here is the Lord saying, your builders or your children make haste to come into the city. And of course, builders make sense with what's in the end of the verse as the opposite of the destroyers. The builders are coming into Jerusalem. The destroyers are leaving. But of course, there are also children because that's what's going on in verses 19 to 21. It continues to talk about the children of this city and, and so, you know, what, what are they, children or builders? And of course, you know, in one sense, they're both, because um, it was the children of Zion who the Lord called to build that city. Ezra, Nehemiah, Joshua, Zerubbabel, these men who helped to rebuild that city after the captivity. And of course, in a more ultimate sense, Paul in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle, in his ministry to the nations, he said, God has made me not only his child, but also a wise master builder, he said. And there's one foundation in this building, and that's Jesus Christ. But my job is to build, to put stones on this foundation. And Peter says in his letter that we all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are those stones. We're those living stones being fitted together to create a temple for God to dwell in. So, Isaiah's prophecy is your builders or your children will make haste. They'll run toward the city of the living God while, verse 17, the end of the verse, your destroyers and those who laid you waste will go out from you. So here's the vision of a city that is the gathering of all who are God's people, but where all that is corrupting and sinful is eliminated from that place. And then verse 18, lift up your eyes around, he says to the city. Lift up your eyes around and see, they all gather, they are coming to you, these building sons, they're coming into the city. And as I live, declares the Lord God, you, that is Zion, the city, you shall put them all on as an ornament, and you shall bind them on as a bride does. These people will come to the city, will help build the city, and will be the adornment, the beauty of this city that God is making as a, as a testimony for his grace and as a dwelling place with his people forever. And just like the priests in the Old Testament were adorned with the breastplate, having 12 stones, 12 jewels that represented the tribes of Israel and covered their heart. This city bride is also bejeweled with, with what? With multitudes of holy children. They bejewel her. They are her glory, these sons and daughters that come from afar. And the inexplicable abundance of these children is what really is the focus in verses 19 to 21. Here's a devastated city, apparently abandoned by God, forsaken, destitute, lying empty of human beings practically, and the Lord says it will be inexplicably filled with sons and daughters building this city up. Look at verse 19. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, you land. 
He's speaking to the, the city itself. You city, you're going to be too narrow, too small for all of these inhabitants who are in this city. And those who swallowed you up, they will be far away. But the children, verse 20, the children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, this place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Inexplicably, this abandoned city will be filled. This bereaved mother Jerusalem will now have so many children that she's going to have to expand her borders in order to hold them all. And this is really what Isaiah is going to go on and say later on in chapter 54. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitation, O Zion, be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Just picture this tent, this family's tent, and it gets too small for this growing family. So he says, lengthen your cords out. Strengthen your stakes. Spread this tent out a little further because it's going to need to be bigger. And he says, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to your left. Your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. This is a glorious promise that Zion will expand and have to expand in order to encompass all of the people of God. And Zion will. It will expand into all Judea, Jesus said and into Samaria, and to the ends of the world, this city is going to grow and grow and grow so that it is able to be filled with all of the children of God. Which then, of course, leads Israel to ask, verse 21, where did they come from? (laughs) Who has borne me these children? Why would she say that? Because these don't seem to be her natural children. Who has borne me these? For I was bereaved and barren. I couldn't have children. I was unfruitful, Israel says. Exiled and put away by God. So who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Right? How can it be that a barren woman would have children? That a wife who's been put away will now have a full house? And we'll come back to this, Lord willing, in the next week or two. But look at the next two verses the Lord gives his answer to them. Verse 22, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hands to the what? To the nation, to the Gentiles, and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers. (laughs) The Lord's answer to them when they say, hey, our city is barren. We're unfruitful. We're cast off by you, O Lord. How do we explain the promise that that Zion will be filled with, with holy children and worshipers and builders of this great temple of God? How do you explain that? And the Lord's answer is that the children of Zion will in fact be the children of the nations. That their kings and queens will be like your foster parents. The Lord foresees a future Zion. Now think of, think of the people who are reading this, right? They're about to go uh, into captivity. In just a short number of years, 
Um, the, the, the next generation, they're going to be desolate for 70 years. And the Lord says to them, your, your city is going to be so filled with people that it's going to have to expand to encompass even the nations of the world. The city of Zion will have to expand to encompass the elect of all of the nations of the world, the Lord says. And then in the end of verse 23, with their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet, paying homage to the true king of kings. Then you will know that I am the Lord and that those, look at this, and that those who what? Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. I tell you, that's one of the sweetest statements of the Lord in all the Bible. That's one I quote back to him over and over and over again. Lord, you have said that none who wait upon you shall be put to shame. And that's where I am. And there may be a time when you're, you're just waiting. You're waiting for God to answer prayers. You're waiting for God to fulfill all of these incredible promises that he's made, not only about the people of God as a whole, but about your life. You're waiting for God to finish his work, to mature his work of, of sanctification and growth in your life. And there are going to be times when you're tempted to say, God's forgotten all about it. He's done. I mean, where is he? And he says, I will, in the end, do this work so that all may see that those who wait for me will not be put to shame, that you will know it, that you will see it. The Lord says, wait and I will bring it to pass. The day of salvation, the day of favor is coming I will not, I cannot forget or forsake those who belong to me. And those who persevere in faith like that will not be put to shame. The Lord says, I will remember you. My anger is but for a moment, but my favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Wait on the Lord. And that's really, again, one of the big... Um, takeaways for all of us today. Just like the Lord spoke to his servant, wait and trust me, the day is coming. The Lord is saying that to every one of us when we're in the middle of the worst um, uh, time of our life. Wait. Those who wait for me will not be put to shame. With the way this passage concludes, there's a second complaint from Zion, and it's in verse 24. A second complaint that the people of God make when it seems that the way is impossible. And here's the complaint. Verse 24, the city of Zion is, is speaking. You see the thinking of Zion as they view themselves as sort of prey, prey for a powerful predator. Can you imagine that? Thinking of themselves as just prey. And God's people begin to question, can the prey be taken away out of the clutches of the mighty? Or can the captives of a tyrant be released? I mean, if their concern back in verse 14 was, is God good? Does he really remember us? Then their concern here seems to be, is God what? Is God able? Is God able? I mean, this is a powerful predator. This is a powerful nation. And, you know, you look around, and I wonder if you've ever thought that way about your enemy not your flesh and blood enemies, but I mean the principalities and powers that array themselves against the people of God, the demons of temptation and sin 
that seem to have you so often under their powerful talons? Has it ever happened with you, like it did with Zion, that you say to yourself, how can someone be delivered from such a powerful foe? I mean, you look around at the way that sin seems to get its claws into you, seems to have such a power and hold over you. Maybe you're tempted to say, you know what, Satan is so powerful. He's so subtle. He's so persistent. How will I ever escape from such a foe? This is the Lord's answer to his people in just times like that. Look at verse 25. Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be released. It will happen. Why? Because I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. (laughs) There's the hope, right? It's like David, who's out there on the mountain with his flock, and the lion and the bear come to tear them apart, and David himself goes after them with his bare hands even. The Lord says, listen, listen to me, friends, please listen. All of the enemies that are arrayed against God's people, the Lord says, I will deliver you from their hand. I will. How will it ever be that we'll escape? How will it be that we'll be, we'll be fruitful? How will it be that we'll ever be holy people in light of all that we're up against? And the Lord's answer is, I will fight for you. I will defeat your enemy. I will overcome them. Right? You're to work out your own salvation because I'm working in you both to will and to do of, his good, of God's good pleasure. This is the, our hope. Our hope is the almighty power of God. And he says in the end of verse 26, or in verse 26, and I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall all be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Just an absolute destruction of the enemies of God's people. And then he says in the end of verse 26, then all of that is for this purpose, that all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. That's what happens in the end. In the end, when all of God's people who have been experiencing his sanctifying work all their lives and he finally brings it to fruition when they see Christ and all of their best attempts to obey the Lord are solidified in that moment because they see him for who he is and they are eternally and forever sanctified in glory in that moment. When the Lord finally gets his people to that point and the enemy is put under Jesus' feet, every enemy, even every last one, when all of the outworking of the unfolding of the kingdom of Christ is finally brought to its fruition, then, in the end, not only do we, he says, but everyone sees that he is the Lord and he is the Savior of his people. There will be times before that point when you and I will feel like he, as the confession said, leaves for a season his children to manifold temptations and they suffer the sharp claw marks of the enemy on their souls. But you have God's word that those who wait upon him will not be put to shame. Why? Because he will vindicate himself. He will enter into battle with the enemy 
for all of those who trust him. Sin will not have dominion over you. And so the Lord says this morning to all of you who are true citizens of Zion, the Lord says to you this morning, I have not forsaken. I haven't forgotten you. Wherever you are, however hard it seems, however strong it appears that the opposition is, this is the Lord's word to you today. And I encourage you to take it up with faith and to receive it and to act upon it. You might be in Babylon for a period of time under the Lord's chastisement, but God's purposes for that are always good. To chasten, to humble, to cultivate a faithful dependence on Him. And the Lord says to you today, don't lose heart. I am purifying my bride. I will not forget I will not give up until all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior, and to him be glory forever and ever. God's people said,